welcome you back to our series called The Way of Jesus, uh, which is a series designed to answer the question, what exactly is this lifestyle that we call Christianity? To answer that question, we are spending a number of weeks in a teaching that Jesus gave during his time here called the Sermon on the Mount. If you were here last week, you probably remember that the content um, was very, it was aimed outward, meaning we looked at what Jesus had to say regarding our relationships with other people, specifically those that are easy to cut out and write off. Today, just the opposite. Uh, today, we are looking, what Jesus, we're looking at what Jesus has to say regarding uh, our relationship, not with other people, but actually with ourselves. And to explain what I mean, I'm just going to let Jesus speak for himself. Short passage today, just two verses, will be in Luke chapter 6, verses 41 and 42, where Jesus said, quote, Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself don't see the log in your eye, hypocrite? First, take the log out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck, uh, take out the speck in your brother's eye. <clears throat> this is God's word. So, shorter, shorter passage than we've looked at so far in this particular series. Uh, but as is so often the case with Jesus, he knows how to say quite a lot by saying very little. And what Jesus is talking about here is something that everybody struggles with, and actually. And ironically, if you do not think you struggle with it, it actually proves how deeply you do. Uh, Jesus is talking about hypocrisy. And what he gives us in this passage, and this is what we're going to talk about today, is first off, the anatomy of hypocrisy, what it actually is. Secondly, the root of hypocrisy, where it comes from. And then thirdly, the solution to hypocrisy and what our lives can look like if we can do what it is that Jesus is calling us to do here. So first question I wanted to ask today is what exactly is hypocrisy? Because that's a word that gets thrown around a lot. Sometimes, although maybe not even most of the time, at least sometimes though, I do think, you know, hypocrite, hypocrisy is thrown around unfairly. So it's important to understand that, that, that uh, important to make sure we understand what Jesus is talking about here. The Greek word that's translated into our English word hypocrite uh, is a word that literally referred to an actor or a stage player. And so Jesus is saying really that the essence of hypocrisy is it's, it's standing on a stage wearing a mask, pretending to be something that you're not. Now, the, the mark of all great acting in Jesus's day, and, and this is the same in our day, just follow me here, a great actor is somebody who is able to hide in public. That's really what acting is. You're a great actor if you are able to stand before people in public, either on a stage or on a screen or whatever it is, and yet, despite the fact that you are in front of people, you're able to hide who you actually are. That's, that's really what good acting is. If the part that you're playing requires you to be one way, you're able to present that image, even if that's nothing like what you're actually like. It's a very valuable thing to be able to do on stage. Unfortunately, it's a really terrible thing to do through life. And so with that, kind of a helpful way to understand hypocrisy, because there really is kind of two elements of it. Hypocrisy is not only pretending to be something that you're not, 
It's hiding what you really are. That's what Jesus is talking about here. And if you read this passage carefully, you'll see uh, there are two primary ways that hypocrisy manifests itself in a person's life. And actually, they're, they're both given to us in verse 41. Jesus says, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? There's the first half. But don't notice the log in your own eye. So let's just look at both halves of that verse. First off, Jesus talks about looking at the speck in your brother's eye. What he's talking about is a judgmental spirit. So one of the main ways in which we practice hypocrisy is by finding fault in the people around us. Uh, Just because you're not running around telling people what you don't like about them or gossiping about them behind their back does not mean that you're not doing what Jesus is talking about here. Because notice, Jesus is simply talking about looking at the speck in somebody else's eye. So you, you might have the self-restraint to avoid gossiping or constantly inappropriately confronting people, uh, but in Jesus' little picture here, even if you're just simply hyper-focused on where somebody else needs to change, it's a hallmark of hypocrisy. So first off, hypocrisy is saying, let me hide what I'm like by focusing on what I do not like about you. All right, that's the first main way that that hypocrisy manifests itself. The other main way is in the second half of verse 41, where Jesus kind of completes this thought by saying, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? Secondly, but don't notice the log in your own eye. So on the one hand, hypocrisy is about being overly critical toward others. On the other hand, uh, and right along with that, it's about being hypersensitive to criticism from others. Uh, it, it's, it's about really the inability to receive criticism at all. What Jesus is describing here in the second half of verse 41 is somebody who, for whatever reason, is unable or unwilling to see what's really going on in their own life. And again, there's all kinds of ways this manifests itself. And I'm sure as I, as I walk through just three of these, uh, you can think of people that are like this, or maybe even you've been a person like this. One of the ways this manifests itself, some people... Um, when confronted, even if they're confronted in the right way, they simply kind of fall to pieces and collapse like a house of cards. That's like their defense mechanism that sort of teaches the people around them not to speak into their life because over time people realize they just can't handle it. Uh, Others go exactly the opposite way, and instead of falling to pieces, they actually blow up, and they, they punish people for speaking into their life, which again teaches the people around them over time, all right, it's just not worth it to try to tell them what they need to hear. I'm not gonna bother anymore. Or, you know, I think there's a third group of people who, instead of falling to pieces or blowing up, they just completely dismiss all forms of criticism entirely. They kind of pull up the drawbridges, and they give nobody permission to speak into their life at all, and they just kind of go through life convinced that I'm right about me, and everybody else is wrong. That's really um, the profile that Jesus is laying out here. So having walked through that, let me just, one observation. What's fascinating is I think most people would look at this and think that's two wildly different kinds of people. You know, one is uh, hypercritical of others, the other one's hypersensitive to criticism from others, but in coupling these two things together, Jesus is saying this is really just two sides of the same coin. That the two people might present these different ways, but at the end of the day, what that is, is just two people compensating for the same thing. It's just manifesting itself differently on the surface. But what these two people have in common, what all people who go through life like verse 41 have in common, is that they are deeply uncomfortable with the reality of what's going on in their own hearts, and so they hide. One final thing before we move on from our first idea here. Uh, 
This section about hypocrisy, relatively speaking, is a small section of the Sermon on the Mount. It's it's only two verses dedicated to it here. But in just these two verses, Jesus uses the word that's translated into our English word, I, as an eyeball. He uses that uh, word uh, no less than six times in two verses. And just kind of a pro tip, whenever you see that kind of repetition in the Bible, that is designed to get the reader to, to kind of sit up and take notice and get curious because there's a point that's, that's being made by the author. Jesus' point here in, in, uh, in mentioning the I, as he talks about hypocrisy as often as he does here, his point is that one of the things that makes the sin of hypocrisy unique is that it is a, it's an I sin. It's a sin that, that affects the I, meaning it's a sin that when it takes root in a person's life, it will distort the way that you view everything, including yourself. So here's what that means, and then I'll, I'll move on after this super friendly reminder. Here's what this means. If you have already, uh, you, you know, now that you know what we're talking about today, hypocrisy, if you have already kind of excused yourself from this teaching, but you have a person in mind that really needs to hear this teaching, that's a real bad sign according to Jesus. Because the the telltale sign of hypocrisy in a person's life, the hallmark of a hypocrite, if you will, is the ability to see hypocrisy in other people coupled with a total inability to even consider its presence in your life. I'm just going to let the Holy Spirit do what only the Holy Spirit can do there. We're going to keep on moving before I get run out of here. All right? If that's what hypocrisy is, let's talk about, number two, where does hypocrisy come from, class? I'm glad you asked. The reason, according to Jesus, that we hide from uh, uh, other people, that we hide from other people, I think I pronounced like every vowel sound just there, the reason we hide from other people is because, according to Jesus' words, uh, we're actually hiding from ourselves. Look at verse, the first half of verse 42. Jesus says, how can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye when, I'm going to focus on this phrase of Jesus, when you yourself don't see the log in your eye, hypocrite. So just taking this verse at face value, Jesus is, is not simply saying we fail to admit our flaws. He's saying we fail to see them. Now, this is um, kind of enlightening to me because normally, when, when I'll just speak personally, normally when I think of a hypocrite, I think of somebody who is, is presenting, they're, they're choosing to be something in public, you know, before an audience, while deliberately choosing to be something else in private behind the scenes. And, and so, in other words, when I tend to think of a hypocrite, the first, you know, the, the idea that comes to my mind is somebody that has pulled the wool over everybody else's eyes. And to be clear, that is a hypocrite. That is hypocrisy. But according to Jesus, the root of that hypocrisy, the root of all hypocrisy, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, it's not just about pulling the wool over everybody else's eyes. It's about pulling the wool even over your own. Right? The root of public deception always comes from self-deception. And with this phrase where, where Jesus says, you yourself don't see the log in your own eye, you hypocrite, he's actually telling us three things about the self-deception that we are all prone to practicing. And here is where this is going to get real psychological. So if you like that kind of thing, you're really going to appreciate Jesus' words here. <clears throat> First off, let's just look at this phrase, you yourself don't see the log in your eye. First off, when Jesus says you don't see it, 
Here's what this means. Jesus is saying that we all deliberately choose to not see the truth about ourselves. Meaning the inclination of the human heart to hide itself is so powerful that not only do we not want other people looking into our hearts, we don't even want to see into them. We hate seeing who we really are. Secondly, by saying that it is a log that we fail to see, Jesus' point is that even though we don't really see into our lives with clarity, even though we don't see our problems with clarity, we know that our problems are enormous. Because the, the Greek word translated log here, or some versions say beam, what that refers to is the load-bearing beam in a house. Basically something like a telephone pole today, which is obviously, it is, it's a piece of wood that is millions of times larger than a speck. Jesus' point there is not that hypocrites are millions of times worse than regular sinners, whatever that even means. His point is, we all have this sense. The, every human heart has this intuitive sense that there is something enormously wrong inside of us, which is why we go to such great and ridiculous and exhausting lengths to avoid facing who we are. But thirdly, and this is the most interesting part, it, it's, it's very noteworthy that Jesus says this log that we fail to see, he could have said that log was in your hand, he could have said it was in your foot or wherever, uh, but he said that this log, of all the places that it could be, it's actually in your eye. Here's why that matters. When something is in your eye, I know you know what I'm talking about. I know this has happened to you at some point in your existence. When something is in your eye, you know that it's there. You cannot not know that it's there. You move with a constant awareness that it's there. However, ironically, because it's in your eye, despite the fact that you know it's there, you're the only person that can't see it because you're too close to it. It's in your eye. Therefore, it remains invisible to you. So what, why, would Jesus, why would Jesus phrase you know, this teaching that way? Here's his point. He's saying uh, that even though we know we're sinners in a sense, in another sense, we think that we're not. To explain that point, I want to share a story with you um, that I've never shared before. I had an interaction with a guy several years ago now that I knew would one day make it into a sermon analogy and, and could not be any more better fit for this. <clears throat> Conversation with a guy several years ago who reached out to me because he, um, he had what he thought was kind of like a supernatural vision. And uh, he figured because I was a pastor that, you know, I would know what to do with that. And full disclosure, they did not offer that class at Moody Bible Institute, but I gave him what I had. And so he told me about what happened and what he saw and what he heard and how he felt and all that kind of stuff. And I asked a couple of follow-up questions. And then I offered him my, my, my staple good advice. This is literally the best advice that I can ever offer anyone. And before I offer it, I just, you can steal this because it works in a, in a su surprisingly wide array of situations and, and questions. I said, after, after asking my questions, here's how I boiled it down. I don't know why I chuckle about this. I said, all right, here's, here's what it is. Either on the one hand, what you saw was from God, or number two, it was not from God, but number three, and this part's important, <laughs> you should get ready to meet God, which I think is just universally good advice, no matter what question somebody brings to you, so feel free, copy-paste that when somebody asks you about their vision. So from there, the conversation turned, and he started to 
to talk about if he was ready to meet God and the life that he lived. And he told me about, you know, how he'd lived a good life and he thought he was a pretty good person and he'd legitimately done some good things and, and he got very specific about what those things were and they were legitimately good things that God would look at and say, those are absolutely good things. But then I gently pushed back on him and I said that, you know, the Bible teaches that we can't earn our salvation through the good life that we live, which is the whole reason that we need Jesus. And he kind of, you know, he pushed back on me and said, oh, no, 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 I don't you misunderstand. I'm not saying that I can earn my salvation. And then the conversation took a turn again. And he started to tell me about his children and the regret that he felt for not being a better father to them when they were young. And right then and there, he broke down into tears in front of me. And the reason that interaction had such an impact on me was because in the span of one conversation, and please believe, I, I wasn't grilling the guy. I wasn't, you know, you're a terrible person. You need to, it wasn't like that. That's just not my approach. I wasn't, you know, pressing him or trying to, like, have a therapy session or anything like that. But in the, in the span of one fairly short conversation with just a few follow-up questions, he went from being so sure he was a good person to weeping because he knew he wasn't. And you zoom out from that, and it, and it begs the question, so which is it? Do we, do we think that we're good enough, or do we know that we're not? And if you were to ask that question to the Bible, the answer that the Bible gives you is simply yes. We do think we're good enough, and we know that we're not good enough. And that is precisely Jesus' point. It, Jesus is making a really profound psychological statement here because if he's right, and I think he is right because I think he's God, what this means is regardless of whether or not a person believes in God, regardless of whether or not a person believes that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, regardless of whether or not someone even believes in things like absolute truth or objective morality, what Jesus is saying specifically, and really what the whole Bible teaches, is that we all have this same awareness in us. The Bible refers to it as us having the law written on our hearts. What it means is that we all move through life with this voice that condemns us. And, and basically, we spend our entire lives trying to shut that voice up. And so, yeah, we hide from other people because at the end of the day, we're actually hiding from ourselves. The question is, what are we supposed to do about that? And that's the question that Jesus answers at the end of this passage. In the second half of verse 42, <clears throat> Jesus says, First, take the log out of your eye, and then you'll see clearly to take out the speck in your brother's eye. <clears throat> First off, before I get to what Jesus is commanding us to do here, I just want to point out what Jesus says is the goal, because it's really interesting to me. We are a culture that that really values things like privacy and autonomy and individuality. And so in a culture like ours, I think what, what we would expect Jesus to say and maybe what we would even want Jesus to say is, uh, you hypocrite, stop worrying about the speck in somebody else's eye and just worry about that log in yours, period, end of sentence. Jesus doesn't say that. The end goal of your life, if you are a follower of Jesus, according to Jesus here, is not a privatized relationship with God where you kind of just mind your own business and try to live as good a life as you can and, and go to heaven when you die. The end goal of your life, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, according to Jesus here, is to make you into the kind of person who is able to remove the speck from somebody else's eye. So the question is, well, what does that actually mean? Removing the speck from somebody else's eye 
is about becoming the kind of person who's able to bring real healing to the people around you as you speak the truth in love to them in a way that they can actually receive it. Right, so just, just so we're crystal clear here, this is obviously not talking about just criticizing people and pointing out where they need to change. That's not difficult to do. It takes no skill whatsoever to speak the truth, not in love. What Jesus is calling us to here is infinitely more difficult than that. Jesus is talking about with real wisdom, because you have to see clearly to take the speck, with real wisdom, with extreme gentleness, and with all the skill that eye surgery requires, you're able to help people see the issue underneath all the other issues in their life, the problem underneath all the surface-level problems in their life so that they can actually go on to live the life that God has called them to live. That and nothing less is the goal according to Jesus. But the way to get there, the way to develop that skill and become the kind of person that can do that, <clears throat> something needs to happen first, something that Jesus refers to as taking the log out of your own eye. So again, the question, what does that mean? What does it mean to take the log out of your own eye? What Jesus is talking about here with this log, it's obviously, it's not you know, a bunch of individual sins. It's not a really big besetting sin. And, and actually, it's more than just admitting, yep, I'm a sinner who needs a Savior and his name is Jesus. When Jesus, and I think you'll understand this in the context of the teaching thus far, when Jesus calls his followers to take the log out of their own eye, what Jesus is talking about is choosing to make visible, choosing to bring to the surface that which you would rather not face but a part of you knows is there. Jesus is talking about leaving behind the comfortable self-deception that the human heart gravitates toward and instead walking in the light of self-awareness. This is something that one of the, the disciples of Jesus, a man named John, talked about when he was a much older man pastoring Christians himself. In the letter, uh, we, we, I think we covered this maybe two years ago, but in the letter of 1 John, uh, chapter 1, John opens up that letter, writing as an older man to, to who were probably primarily young Christians. John opens up chapter 1 talking about what it means to walk with God and, and how you can know that you have a, a vibrant relationship with God. And in, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, he says something that's really curious to me. He says, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The reason I say that's curious is because John is writing to people who are Christians, meaning those were people who had already at some point in their life come to the awareness that I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and his name is Jesus. So the question is, why is John talking about saying we have no sin and living in self-deception? The only answer is that it must be entirely possible for people, even people who have admitted that they're a sinner, and they need a Savior named Jesus. Even people who, who walk with Jesus to live to a great degree in the self-deception that Jesus is talking about here. Live in the hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about here. And so what John is teaching, and, and really he's just in line with his rabbi Jesus in 1 John chapter 1 verse 8. What he's teaching by implication is that one of the telltale signs that you can know, if you've ever wondered, am I really in the faith? Do I really have a, a genuine relationship with God? John is saying, he's teaching by implication, one of, the, one of the telltale signs that the truth is in you and that you have a vibrant, life-giving, developing relationship with God and you yourself are growing in maturity in the likeness of Jesus 
is that you are becoming more spiritually aware of everything that needs to change in your life. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a process in which, and all I can do is kind of describe what it looks like. And admittedly, it's going to look different for all of us. But it's a process in which pride that you used to not recognize as pride, now it's becoming obvious to you. Uh, self-centered tendencies that you used to sort of normalize and that's ah, just who I am, it's not a big deal. Now they're starting to bother you. You're not okay with them anymore. Uh, it's a process in which you're able to get outside of your own life to the point that you are beginning to see that so many of the good gifts that God has given you, you've allowed to take the place of God himself. And your heart's actually full of idols and you're asking all these other things and all these other people to be and do for you what only God can be and do for you. And that, more than anything else, is the real source of, of so much of the tension and the anxiety and the restlessness and the bitterness and the resentment you feel. It's not about what's going on outside of you. It's about what's going on in your own heart. Taking the log out of your eye is about realizing the sin that you thought you had pretty well put behind you is actually an iceberg, and you've just been tapping against it with a chisel all your life. We're talking about a radical coming to terms with who you actually are before God. Now, I realize I'm not really selling this well. I was not unaware of that when I put this together. And I'm sure that, that maybe if I was tuning into this teaching, one of my first thoughts would be, um, I feel bad about... I feel bad about myself enough already. I don't need that hard pass. But as much as, as that inclination might rear its ugly head, what Jesus would say to that is yes. What, what, what he's calling his followers to here is incredibly uncomfortable. But the alternative is far worse. Because if you and I simply say, no thanks to Jesus, then what will happen is we will move through life as actors on a stage Hiding behind a mask, not, not only hiding from other people, but hiding even from ourselves, which means eventually we're going to make a mess of our lives. We're going to hurt the people around us. And, and maybe most importantly, according to Jesus, we're never going to become the kind of people that can bring real healing and real change to the people that he's put in our lives that maybe are counting on us. So this is a painful thing that Jesus calls us to, but like all good surgeries, there's greater health on the other side of it, so it's worth going through. Now, as simple as that sounds, I dedicated the whole half, first half of this teaching to making the point that our own hearts are going to fight against us as we do this. So the idea that any human being can simply, you know, press a button and decide to face themselves, it just doesn't work that way. Our own hearts are going to work against us here. So the question, as it always comes to the surface when you sit in any passage of Scripture long enough, the question is, how are we going to do this? And the answer, I'm sure I'm not going to surprise anybody here, is we have to understand what Jesus has done for us. But what I want to do, we're, we're getting ready to, to land the plane today. What I want to do as we close is I just want to put an idea before you, kind of like a thesis statement, and then I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to walk through it because for whatever reason, it's a, it's a difficult idea for me to try to put into words but I'll put the, the thesis statement before you. Uh, I'll do my best to explain it, and then we'll close with communion. So, so here's the thesis as we sort of begin to move toward the end today. <clears throat> you will never be able to face yourself until you have faced Jesus. You cannot do it. Uh, stated positively, you will only be able to face yourself after you have faced Jesus. There's the thesis. Now I'll walk through it. <clears throat> 
What Jesus is saying here, in a sense, if you kind of zoom out from it, he's saying that you and I will not be able to help anybody else until we have paid what is really an awful price. It's the price of coming to the end of ourselves, facing ourselves, admitting that we're sinners, repenting, all of that. It's an incredibly painful thing. And in a sense, Jesus is the ultimate example of this because Jesus knew that before he could help us with our sin, he needed to pay the price for it, which is exactly what he did. And what Jesus did when he went to Calvary, I'm sure you've heard this before, but, but maybe not the way that I'm going to walk through it. Jesus paid the ultimate price when he hung on the cross for our sin. Again, definitely not an idea that you're hearing for the first time if you've been in church for a long time. But, but let me offer this to you. In the last 10 years of pastoring, only a handful of times have people asked me uh, the question I'm about to put before you. And I think it's a question that a lot of us have. We just feel kind of, we feel weird about asking it out loud. But maybe it's a question you've had. Just a handful of times people have asked me, how was Jesus, how was his suffering the ultimate price? Meaning when we talk about Jesus experiencing infinite suffering and agony and misery and, and, you know, paying this cosmic price, how is that true? Because while obviously crucifixion was a terrible way to die, historically, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people died by crucifixion. And Jesus came back to life in three days. So people have asked me the question, how can we say that that's the ultimate price? Here's why. What Jesus experienced on the cross is what every human heart, and what I'll offer to you, it's what your human heart is most terrified of. And he experienced all of mankind's, what our hearts are, are so terrified of, all at once. Since the moment sin entered the world, in Genesis chapter 3, the very first thing we see people doing in response to sin, when we knew that there was something wrong with us, we ran and we hid and we sewed fig leaves together because more than anything else, we are terrified of being exposed. We're, we're driven by shame. And understood that way, really the whole story of the Bible and the whole story of human history is, is mankind's, it's this long, sad story of mankind looking for new fig leaves to try to hide behind. That's all it is. And, they, and none of them ever work any better than Adam and Eve's did. And so what, what Jesus Christ experienced on the cross is what we are all most terrified of. Jesus knew what it was to be truly and utterly and entirely exposed. Obviously, physically, because he was stripped naked and his hands were nailed open, he didn't even have the, was, he was denied the dignity to be able to cover himself with his own arms. But more than that, he's exposed mentally, he's exposed emotionally, he was exposed psychologically, he was exposed spiritually. Jesus Christ on the cross, he experienced the shame that we have been running from and trying to compensate for since the day that we ran out on God in Genesis 3. He experienced it not only before people, but before his father. I heard a pastor say one time, and you can't point to this in chapter and verse in the Bible, it's not like that, but I think there's merit to it, and I'll just present it to you. I heard a pastor say one time that the greatest fear of the human heart, the greatest fear of the human heart is to be fully seen, fully known, and rejected. Now, I just want you to consider this. If you are snubbed by somebody that you don't know, that'll fire you up, that will sting, that will hurt like a, you know, a scrape or a bump or a bruise. It'll heal on its own eventually. You carry it with you maybe a few days, maybe a few weeks if it was a really bad interaction. But think about this. When someone is an integral part of your life, when somebody is an integral part of your life and they have had the opportunity to see you for who you are, 
Not just on your best days, but on your worst days. They know you. You, couldn't, you can't hide from them. When somebody that knows you like that decides to be done with you, that is a kind of wound that we, that we may never heal from this side of eternity. And for some of you, this is not theoretical. Some of you know exactly what that's like personally. You know how painful that is. Just understand that's exactly what Jesus Christ went through on the cross. As, as he hung on the cross for our sin, forsaken by his own father, we don't have a category for that kind of pain, for that kind of suffering, for that kind of agony. Now, having understood all of that, what happens to a human being the moment that they give their life to Jesus is all of our shame becomes his. Let me pause here. <clears throat> I know I took some time explaining that, but in my experience being a pastor for the last 10 years and in my experience in my own life, for whatever reason, we don't really have that much difficulty understanding that. I think generally speaking, most of the people that I've talked to, for whatever reason, pretty easily understand this idea that Jesus took something from us, our shame, our guilt, our sin. But the reason, please follow me here, the reason that so many people struggle with the hypocrisy Jesus talks about here even after they've given their life to Jesus is because they don't understand that that's only half of what happens when you give your life to Jesus. Meaning, the gospel is not just about what Jesus takes away from you, it's about what he gives to you. The moment that you give your life to Jesus, yes, all of your shame becomes his, but at the same time, all of his glory all of his honor, all of his love and acceptance and significance and security and beauty, all of that becomes yours. Meaning Jesus Christ did not die to give you a second chance, even that's what so many of us live like we believe, that all we got was a second chance, I better not screw it up. Jesus didn't die to give you a second chance, he, gave, he died to give you a second life. It's a brand new identity. This is exactly what Paul's trying to get Christians to understand in the letter called Colossians, early on in chapter 3, where he tells believers, he says, you have died. At the beginning of chapter 3, Paul's getting ready to tell Christians how to live now. But before he bothers telling them what to do, he reminds them of who they are. Because what we do depends on our understanding of who we are. Paul says to Christians, you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Now, he's obviously not speaking literally there. He's speaking to people who were still alive. So what, what Paul means there is the person that you were before you gave your life to Jesus, the life that you lived, the mistakes that you made, the people that you hurt, the guilt and the shame that you feel, none of that has the ability to define you any longer. That identity is dead. It's lifeless. It's powerless. It can't touch you. It doesn't define you. And what happened when you gave your life to Jesus is now you have this new life or this new identity that Paul says is hidden with Christ in God. That means it doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on how you perform today. It doesn't depend on the good things that you do or the bad things you keep yourself from doing. It doesn't depend on your public stock, what your parents say about you, what your spouse says about you, other people, your own kids say about you. It depends entirely on the life that Jesus Christ has already lived for you. There is no philosophy or belief system or worldview that, that has ever even offered something like this. Just understand only in Jesus... Do you get an identity that is received rather than achieved? 
It's not going to put you on trial every day because Jesus Christ already stood on trial for you and he was condemned for you so that you could go free. The reason that we have to understand this, the reason that I spent all this real estate explaining this concept is because apart from Jesus, would you please search yourself and see if what I'm about to say is not true in your life because I know it is in mine. Apart from Jesus, we have no choice but to build our identity, if not on the life that Jesus lived, we will build it on the life that we live. We will build it on what people say about us or, or our career or what we own or what we're worth or what we achieve. And as long as we look for our identity in the life that we live, we'll never be able to face ourselves because owning our mistakes and really seeing to the bottom of our heart, really getting honest with who we are, so long as our identity is wrapped up in how we live, it'll be like committing psychological suicide. It's too painful and we'll never be able to do it. My point in saying all of this is that only a relationship with Jesus Christ allows you to take off the mask and walk off the stage. <clears throat> with that, I wanna call the worship team up and we're gonna close down. <clears throat> A couple of years ago, I heard a pastor tell a story. <clears throat> he said he was on a, a plane with a friend of his from Japan. And he was asking him about Japanese culture, and he asked him, for whatever reason, he asked him if Japan had a big homeless problem. And the guy said, Japan has a huge homeless problem, but you'd never know it because nobody talks about it. And the way that it works in Japan, even today, by the way, the way that it works in Japan is if you lose your job, you don't tell anybody. And so you, you could potentially pass by thousands of people in, in, in inner city Japan uh, who are unemployed, but you'd have no idea because they haven't even told their own families. And instead what they do is they, they continue to get up at the same time every morning, they put on their suit, and they leave as though they're going for work, and they look for work. And they spend time with other people who are looking for work. And if they don't find a job soon enough, they simply stop coming home. And maybe that sounds crazy to people in our culture, but it makes perfect sense in that culture. Because in that culture, you earn your value. And you earn your sense of self-worth through what you do, through your work, through your ability to produce and to contribute. And so the idea of not being able to contribute to society, it's just, it's unthinkable. And so what happens within that framework, within that worldview is when you lose your job, you just stop coming home. And I say all this to say, only a relationship with Jesus Christ allows you to truly come home and face everything there is that you need to face. Because in Jesus, you get an identity that does not depend on you. And when a human being, according to Jesus, according to the last 2,000 years of church history, when a human being begins to understand and to build their life on the reality that their significance and their safety and their security and their, their, their entire life has nothing to do with them but depends entirely on what's in Jesus' heart. When you understand that, then you're finally free to begin to get honest with what's really going on in your heart. And so I'll, I'll leave you today simply with this idea. You will only be able to face yourself when you have faced Jesus, the one who looked into your eye saw a massive beam of wood in there, and instead of condemning you, allowed himself to be nailed to it so that you could take off the mask, walk off the stage, and help other people do the same. We're going to end today with communion.
Sarah's going to lead us in one final song, and during that song, you're welcome to take the bread, take the juice, and then when that song is over, I'll come back up and we'll take communion together. One of the few things that we're commanded to do as we take communion as God's people is to examine ourselves. And so I just want to invite you, in light of the words of Jesus that we looked at this morning, during this final song, would you just take a few minutes get quiet, get still before God, and ask him what he would bring to the surface in your life. Is there anything that you have been hiding from yourself? Are there things that you've been lying to yourself about that maybe you you don't know, but you know? Uh, Communion is an amazing time to bring whatever that is to God, knowing that in Christ, nothing in our hearts condemns us because our salvation does not depend on on what's in our hearts. It depends on what's in Jesus' heart, the Savior who was condemned for us so that we could get God as a Father. Let's take communion. All right, we're going to take communion together, and I'll dismiss us in prayer. But before we do that, let me read some scripture over us Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. So if you have been raised with the Messiah, Seek what is above, where the Messiah is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on what is above, not on what is on the earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with the Messiah in God. When the Messiah, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Go ahead and take the bread and the juice. Lord Jesus, it is an exhausting game, hypocrisy. Standing on a stage wearing a mask, pretending to be something that we're not, finding fault in other people, and image management, and constantly obsessing with what we look like and how we come across and all of that. And that's a game that you want to see us leave behind. You have so much more for us, but the only way to get there is to accept this gift that you offer to everyone who comes to you. Lord Jesus, thank you that you took all the shame and you took all the guilt and all the punishment, that you know what it's like to experience what our hearts are most terrified of, to truly be exposed so that we would never have to fear that. Thank you that to the one who comes to you, you will in no wise cast out. Thank you that you welcome sinners to come exactly as they are to just get honest about how much they need you, to hand you their identity and to receive a new one. Lord Jesus, thank you that our, our glory and honor and love and acceptance, significance, security, safety, our salvation, our life, it doesn't depend on the life that we live, but on the life that you lived. It doesn't depend on what's in our hearts. It depends on what's in your heart. Please help us to be a community of people that understand that so that as we walk with you throughout our lives, we can get increasingly honest about all the areas of our lives that don't yet reflect who you are and what you've done for us. Please make us the kind of people so grounded in the love that you have for us and in the fact that you will never change your mind about us that all our lives we would welcome the truth, both from you and from our brothers and sisters, so that the image of, you, of Jesus can continue to reign supreme in us and through us. For your glory and our joy and all of God's people said, 
amen. Thank you very much, church. I will see you here next week, 4 p.m., as we celebrate the life-changing power of Jesus through baptism. Have a great week.